0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says the central bank will keep hiking interest rates until inflation is tamed while acknowledging it could be a painful process.
1: Achieving price stability, restoring price stability is is an unconditional need. It's something we have to do because really the economy doesn't work for, for workers or for businesses or for anybody without price stability. So it, it, it's the bedrock of the economy really.
0: Wall Street rallies with the Nasdaq closing up close to 3% as investors swoop in on beaten down tech names, seemingly shaking off concerns about a looming recession or higher interest rates.
2: Walmart shares fall heavily as the company misses earnings expectations, even as U.S. retail data shows spending rose for the fourth straight month in April. Deal interrupted merger talks between Unicredit and Commerce Bank are reportedly scuppered by the Ukraine invasion, ending what could have been the first major cross-border deal in the sector.
0: Morning, everybody. Let's um, let's kick off then with uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell, an important speech. He's pledged to raise interest rates as high as they need to go in the fight against surging inflation, even if it means the US economy and labour market would suffer some short-term pain. Speaking at a Wall Street Journal event, Powell insisted the Fed would not shy away in tightening more aggressively until price pressures recede.
1: Are we starting to see what we need to see, which is a, a really clear and convincing uh, evidence that uh, inflation is is coming down. That's what we really need to see. So we'll be watching for that. If that involves moving past, you know, broadly understood levels of neutral, we won't hesitate at all to do that. We won't. And uh, honestly, we'll just, we're, we will go until we feel like we're at a place where we can, uh, where we can say yes, Financial conditions are in an appropriate place. We see inflation coming down. We'll we'll go to that point and uh, there there won't be any hesitation about that.
0: Well, Powell also said the U.S.'s current 3.6 percent unemployment rate is the lowest since the late 1960s. It's well below the Fed's assumed natural level, signaling the central bank is comfortable with a rise in unemployment if it means easing price pressures.
1: Right now, it it feels like it feels like the 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 actual unemployment rate is is not the perfect uh, you have. You have to think about where the where the where the unemployment where the natural rate is compared to today's employment rate. And it it does appear to me that it's it's probably well above three point six percent, but it should shift down as this highly unusual time in our economy and in in our labor market. Um, goes on, we should see that settling down and we should see the natural rate declining and that itself could reduce uh, wage pressures and inflation pressures.
2: Meanwhile, speaking to our colleague stateside, former US Treasury Secretary Jack Lew said he believes the Fed handled the economic fallout of the COVID crisis and its aftermath appropriately, saying a cautious approach is necessary to avoid tipping the US into recession.
1: The Fed will have to keep looking at what do they need to do over the longer term? I think they've been right to move gradually because we don't know that that's the case. You know, and they do know that if they move hard and fast, uh, they can trigger a recession. They're trying to thread a needle.
2: A big focus on the unemployment rate yesterday, and this is a little bit in, in the way of old-fashioned economics as we talk about the Naira again. At yep. what late rate can you have the unemployment level before you start triggering wages, growth and inflation? And it clearly came through in J-PAL's commentary yesterday. Mm. 3.6% isn't the number. We are really in that territory where we start to see the ratcheting up in prices. So yep. one of the casualties here clearly has to be the labour force that we can't have this record low unemployment continuing on, but also uh, the legacy from the pandemic where you saw people leave the labour force, the changing of the types of jobs people were willing to undertake, I think this is having dramatic consequences. And I think what we should be looking for down the track is that 3.6% to settle a little bit higher if uh, the Fed is going to do what it says and tackle inflation.
0: I don't know. Um, The interesting thing is uh, you never quite know in each um, circumstance of high inflation, what ultimately is generating that inflation? And I know that sounds like a really daft things to, thing to say because we sit around this desk and we say, oh, look at the zero COVID strategy in China, it's causing supply chain problems. That's obviously pushing up the prices of things. Uh, We sit here, we look at the job market, we say, well, clearly the job market is tight. There are more vacancies than there are people available to fill those positions. Obviously, that's pushing up inflation. Look at the energy markets. We've got this tightness of energy and the Russia-Ukraine invasion, and clearly that's pushing up inflation. But I listened to a terrific conversation between uh, two... um, uh, economists who are historians of inflation, Albrecht ritchell and Duncan Needham, and they they both talked about actually how difficult it has always been trying to understand the current period infl- of inflation in the context of previous bouts. So the nineteen seventies are not as good a guide as we might hope. And there's a lot of retrofitting that goes on by economists to try and understand what's going on here. I raise this point because what we have now is central banks who are taking what they think is the right approach to dealing with these rising price pressures which is to aggressively hike rates and talk down the prospects for the economy. We had Andrew Bailey earlier this week going on about the um, Armageddon of food insecurity that we could see. I mean, I, I paraphrase, he didn't use those words, but nobody came away from listening to Andrew Bailey thinking that the outlook isn't going to get worse from here on in. And we, here we've got Jay Powell very aggressively talking up the prospect of higher interest rates here. And what was interesting is, as he was talking, the yields on the two year and the 10 year both rose. Mm. And yet, by the time he'd stopped talking, the 10 year yield had fallen back again, and ultimately the curve had just flattened. So he didn't really do a huge amount of damage to the curve here. So I am sort of in this quandary that we've got markets rallying, we've got aggressive leading central bankers talking about the need to hike interest rates here and we've got what the bond market keeps telling us is now a peak in the inflationary trend and we've got very robust labor markets something in this mix is going to break you're seeming to suggest it's going to be the labor market Mm -hmm. but let's wait and see Ultimately we have a very different economy now than we did to the nineteen seventies and it seems to be responding very differently to the inputs.
2: Let me just flesh out the thesis a little bit because you've now got this commitment to inflation. And it feels as though central banks are going to take a while to step off this page, a little bit like they were in terms of the transitory page. They were very committed to the fact that we could just see our way through this fluctuation we had in prices. But the reality is price pressures seem to be staying with us for much longer than anyone anticipated. They could potentially go on for months and months and stretch into, what, 2023 and perhaps even beyond at this point, unless we see some resolution in the issues, the war in Ukraine, COVID, zero tolerance policies, you know, the list goes on and you can add climate change mix now as well. Unless these get resolved, prices are not going to come down. Therefore, if central banks are still committed to tackling inflation to send the message that they're going to anchor prices, then you could have that hard landing and you could also have the consequence where capital tightens and you see businesses reluctant to make the same sort of investments and reluctant to hire, which is very different to now where they're concerned about the demand picture having enough staff. I mean, you even saw it the lens of warm-up where they they had extra staff in the end (laughs) that they had too many people who came back from COVID leave so i think that this situation will change down the track and one of the casualties will be that businesses will change their attitude and that will have consequences on the labor market at some point because central banks at this stage might tighten more than we want them to
0: the risk is uh, as you point out at the end there that the authorities break something by inappropriate action And I I do suspect that actually they probably should pretty much leave well alone. I'm not sure that there needs to be an awful lot of tinkering, both fiscal and 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 monetary ultimately to quell the price pressures. Yes, I think we've been at emergency um, uh, monetary conditions as a consequence of the um, the great financial uh, crash of 08. And we need to take back some of that largesse and normalise monetary conditions. But beyond that, do they need to do much more? Because ultimately the solution for high prices is a market reaction whereby... Consumers naturally stop spending because they don't want to pay the higher prices and manufacturers and other producers produce more because they want to take advantage of the higher prices. Both of those actions ultimately will bring down prices as they did back in the 1970s in an, and in other b- bouts of inflation.
2: I don't disagree with you. We might sit very closely together when it comes to central bank thinking, but the Hawks don't forget to point to what they think is runaway inflation and central banks behind the curve here. And let me take you to the market action and what we've got a uh, bump up on the prices, 1.3 on the Dow Jones at two plus percent pop on the s p and the nasdaq stretching for two and three quarters of a percent a very strong day playing out stateside a little bit of a curling off moment intraday when we did hear from jay powell about tackling inflation but then the major indices climbing towards Fresh session highs after that, then despite that brief wobble. So a very strong day across the board. Let's just take a look at the sectors uh, on the S&P and you can see most of them positive. A consumer staples one of the exceptions, 1.1% down. A lot of retail earnings to try and weather during this, the session as well. And Walmart, one of the big ones to get through. 29 up on tech. So you can see the contribution for the tech sector from that uh, component. Also consumer discretionary, 2.6% higher. And communication services are uh, three very strong sectors playing out there the other parts of the market of course if you take a look at the treasury markets this is how we were purchased. we were a little bit higher on that yield, just 3 basis points now off the 3% mark, 2.97 so we've lifted about uh, 5 basis points from the trade same same time yesterday 2.68 on the 2 year yield the dollar as a result, uh, the trade here is uh, this morning like this, sterling euro a little bit weaker versus the greenback, we're at 124.84, so under the 125 mark on sterling, we have climbed back up above uh, 105 on euro, but morning session just giving back a little bit of that territory. But that is a firmer trade than what we've had early in the week 105.34 weaker versus the Japanese yen, stronger versus the Chinese yuan. Jeff.
0: Thanks very much. Shares of Walmart fell to a 52-week low after the company posted disappointing first quarter numbers. The US retailer reported $141 billion in revenue but its quarterly earnings declined by 25 percent. The company says the pressure from rising fuel costs as well as high inflation and higher levels of inventory weighed on its performance. Walmart cut its guidance For full year profit, former Walmart CEO Bill Simon told CNBC the retailers high inventory levels were a surprise. It's crazy. I mean, that's like 8% would have been high. 15% would have been terrible. 32% is apocalyptic. I mean, that's billions of dollars of inventory. That's just frankly just not managed very well. Home Depot posted nearly $39 billion in first quarter revenue, beating Wall Street expectations as sales rose to a record level. The U.S. home improvement retailer says it didn't see lower demand despite higher prices as customers continue to shop for building materials as well as kitchen and bathroom installations. The company raised its full year outlook, expecting sales to increase by 3%. Uh, and it's uh, been a busy week for uh, retail earnings so far and will continue to be so. Target and Lowe's first quarter numbers expected later today. Investors here in the UK will be watching out for any impact of COVID lockdowns and supply chain disruptions on Burberry. Back in the US, we get earnings from Coles on Thursday, followed by Footlocker on Friday. Uh, Ruhul Amin joins us, Head of Retail Equity Research at William O'Neill. Good to have you with us on the programme this morning. Let's just start off with uh, Walmart, if we might. Are these self-inflicted injuries too high a level of inventory and problems with the product mix rather than inflation per se that are causing issues?
3: Hi, uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I think uh, the big takeaway from the quarter was really the fact that inflation has been burning into profitability Um, over the past two, three months. We've seen uh, stocks and companies like Walmart outperform the broader market because, you know, they've been benefiting from food price inflation. Uh, They've been passing that on to the end consumer. And typically that tends to benefit comp growth. And that's led to quite a significant rally year to date. Uh, however, I think going into earnings season, the risk was always around how they were managing some of the cost pressures, and um, you know clearly uh, they're feeling it more than uh, the, the market been expecting. So you mentioned fuel, you know, fuel, some of the fuel pressures that they were seeing, um, some wage inflation, some of the supply chain cost pressures as well, and on a, on a net basis, um, I think inflation, you know might not be a positive for earnings growth anymore. And for some of these stocks which had been trading at relatively elevated valuation multiples going into earnings season um, in a rising rate environment, if you don't deliver the earnings growth to deliver uh, to justify some of the multiples, then uh, you're going to get punished by the market.
0: If, If that's the case, why then did Home Depot argue that there'd been no drop in demand and actually they were able to hold prices in spite of perhaps some concerns that it might um, reduce uh, footfall. Uh, it seems a very different story for uh, this business compared to Walmart.
3: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting uh, discrepancy. I think the key takeaway is that uh, sales trends generally remain healthy. Um, Home Depot mentioned that they are seeing benefits from commodity inflation and, and no real shift in, in consumer demand. Um, But again, that stock has derated significantly um, over the past couple of months in line with the broader market. And, uh, you know, they manage their costs uh, and their operating costs a lot better than Walmart. And and, and that led to the upside upside surprise. But I think uh, if, if we just look at what Walmart was saying, particularly on the discretionary side, they are starting to see signs of softness. They are starting to see signs of shifts in consumer behavior. Uh, towards things like private label. Um, and I think that means that there are risks to discretionary spend generally going into the second half of this year. And that wouldn't be uh, out of sync with what we've seen historically. So if you, see, if you look back to previously challenging economic times, like post-2008, for example, you do see shifts in consumer behavior as they trade down to preserve purchasing power. Um, and that tends to um, come at a cost, particularly for some of the discretionary retailers.
2: It's Karen Jumby, and I just want to probe a little bit further on the inventory levels that plus 33%, and we just played a clip that described it as bad management. But I sort of sat back and thought, didn't we have a conversation over the key holiday period and the retailers that had stocked up, that were flush with inventory, were considered good managers because they had the inventory to sell to those consumers that wanted the product. It seems as though we've changed now. And does that uh, stretch across the C-suite, do you think, for many of the retailers, where they? are not going to order as much, which could, in fact, actually alleviate some of the the pressures we're seeing across supply chains?
3: Yeah, it's a a great question. What I'll say is, you know, over the past 12 to 18 months, it's been a very tricky time for retailers generally, given some of the supply chain blockages that we've seen. It's been difficult to manage inventory. We've seen kind of lumpy um, demand as well. And uh, Walmart management really attributed Inventory bill to things like inflation and inventory delays, among other things, and uh, it is it is high. Um, it's you know they, they are carrying a lot of inventory, but it's expected to normalise over the next couple of quarters. So, you know, I'm not too concerned by by that. I think it's uh, it's it's a function of of wider supply chain issues. It, of course, it could be managed better, but uh, we should expect to see some normalisation over the next couple of quarters.
2: Can I also ask you about uh, what we're seeing in e-commerce sales? I mean, for Walmart, up 1%, uh, 38% on a two-year basis. So clearly some tough comparables here as we talk about some pandemic trends. But we are seeing that in a number of businesses that the growth is just not as strong in e-commerce. Where do you think that leaves some of the development plans that these retailers have?
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, as you mentioned, you know, um, we on the discretionary side on e-commerce, things like general merchandise, um, we are lapping quite challenging comps from last year, but on a two-year basis, sales trends do remain relatively healthy. I think e-commerce for Walmart is something that they, you know, they've been taking quite seriously. They've been investing a lot in some of the infrastructure, trying to transform the business model into more of an omni-channel model, and um, that's the real growth element of the story. Um, now, clearly, there are going to be some challenges, particularly on the discretionary side, going forward, but. I think uh, it, it it does remain does remain healthy on a 2 year 2 year basis and it's a big part of management strategic uh, shift going forward.
0: Ruhel, good to see you. Thanks for helping us out with the story. Ruhel Amin, Head of Retail Equity Research at William O'Neill. And while we're on the retailing uh, uh, front, our US colleagues will be speaking to the target CEO, Brian Cornell. That's later today as the company releases its first quarter numbers. Tune in for the interview at 1300 CET.
2: Coming up on the show, the Financial Times reports that two of Europe's major lenders were slated to open merger talks before the war in Ukraine forced them to shelve a potential deal. We'll discuss next.
0: Unicredit and Commerce Bank were reportedly preparing to enter merger talks before the war in Ukraine forced the two lenders to put a potential deal on hold. This according to a report from the Financial Times. A prospective tie-up could have seen Commerce Bank merge with Unicredit's German subsidiary, creating a lender with 785 billion euros in assets. Since the war in Ukraine, Unicredit has focused on winding back its operation in Russia, With CEO Andrea Orsel admitting it could cost the bank as much as 5.3 billion euros. Karen, I had a groundhog moment here. So I came in this morning and we were all chatting in the newsroom about this Unicredit Commerce Bank deal. And I, I was rubbing my eyes and I was thinking, is this 2022 or is this 2019? Or is this any of the previous iterations of Commerce Bank or Unicredit tied up with another European lender? Do you remember uh, Jean-Pierre Moustier had this plan over at Unicredit that he could expand outside the domestic Italian market, which seemed to be saturated with small and mid-sized banks that were willing to do business at any cost. And we know what the consequences of that were when it came to the sovereign debt crisis and Italy ultimately having to clear up its banking sector there was talk then of Jean-Pierre Mustier looking at Commerce Bank and Commerce Bank as was always the case, it seems to me, was somewhat in the shadow of Deutsche Bank and looking at how it could beef up its operations as well. And here we are. Let's fast forward. Let's have life spin past our eyes from 2019 to 2022. And here we are. We're again talking about a failed potential merger between Unicredit and Commerce Bank. I'm just not buying it until we actually see a document signed or either of these banks willing to step forward and confirm that they were close to getting some details down on paper because this morning neither of them are talking it's very much zoop, nothing to see here so i don't know how important this story actually is if anything it maybe just tells us that there are still a bankers out there who are thinking about cross-border european consolidation in the banking industry even though we haven't seen it successfully pulled off for some time.
2: I mean, there's been no shortage of excuses over the years as to why there's been no consolidation. And the Commerce Bank Deutsche one we covered uh, endlessly and then culminated in absolutely zip. Mm. The Unicredit story you pick up uh, on uh, Jean-Pierre Mastier and mm. what he was doing over at Unicredit, don't forget, one of the reasons why he left the bank was that he didn't seem very friendly to consolidation domestically, BMPS, S. Yeah. so uh, he was replaced, Norcel comes in, the big deal maker, and don't forget There was uh, that uh, fairly big uh, shock in the papers late last year that there was no combination of deal between Unicredit and BMPS, that the deal had effectively collapsed. There were talks that uh, were just not progressing anywhere. and you got to wonder then whether Orsell had a grand plan, why am I consolidating domestically to when cross border might be a, a, a possibility. So and perhaps uh, that deal-making was already in the process if you think about the timing over a couple of months leading into 2022. Uh, but when it comes to another bank domestically, I mean, there've been questions around Bank and BPM. Where are the ready challenges here? I mean, Credit Agricole has taken a slice in that rival bank of just under 10%, thought it might flush out an Unicredit, but that has not been the case. And I, I guess we're when we now want know why, because there's been a greater prize potentially for Unicredit in the form of Commerce Bank. Mm. But the time just doesn't seem right at this stage. The question is whether later this year, 2023, starts to change because, I mean, what's Credit Agricole doing on the share register over at Bank of BPM if it doesn't want to consolidate it as well? So you've got to say there are moves afoot, but everything seems to have just been iced at this stage.
0: Yeah. um, In this round of speed dating, nobody goes home with a partner, it seems.
2: Yes. But they get the wine. They get the spritzer. <laughs>
0: Perhaps. <laughs> and they all get to keep their bonuses and their generous uh, compensation. And
2: naturally, that goes without saying. Well, ABN AMRO returned to the black in Q1, posting a first-quarter net profit of €295 million. Euros. The Dutch bank increased its level of impairments as the lender cited a weaker economic outlook and potential second-round effects from the war in Ukraine. APN AMRO Bank warned the fallout from the conflict will affect its clients, but stressed it remains fully committed to a cost target of below €4.7 billion in 2024. Allianz has agreed a $6 billion settlement with US regulators to settle charges over its structured alpha funds. Investors in the funds lost billions of dollars in the first couple of months of the pandemic. The German insurer's investment arm will also admit criminal securities fraud. It's one of the biggest settlements in American corporate history.
0: Eni says it will open a ruble account with Gazprom for payment uh, for Russian gas. Now that's a move that the EU says will breach sanctions. Russian President Vladimir Putin said last month that quote unfriendly nations must pay for gas in rubles. The Italian energy giant says it will open one account in rubles and one in euros and that it would continue to comply with sanctions.